you have your Bibles, please turn to Luke 20. And as you turn there, I will pray for God's help because I need it. Grant, we beseech you, Almighty God, unto your church, your Holy Spirit, and the wisdom which comes down from above, that your word, as becomes it, may not be bound, but have free course and be preached to the joy and edifying of Christ's holy people, that in steadfast faith we may serve you, and in the confession of your name abide unto the end. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Ghost, ever one God, world without end. Amen. There's no such thing as a stupid question. I'm sure you've heard the phrase before, but for those of us who have raised a toddler, or been a teenager, or had a social media account in the past 10 years, are we entirely sure that's true? The intent behind that phrase is that there's no question that's off limits when it's driven by an actual desire to learn more. And I guess as far as that goes, the old saying holds water. But there are some questions not meant to pursue knowledge or to further a conversation. They can show up in a few different forms. The false dilemma, the gotcha question, or unanswerable speculations. I'm sure you've heard some of these, like, when did you stop beating your wife? Why do only dumb people agree with you? Can God create a rock so big he can't lift it? What was God doing before creation? And Augustine was aware of a pretty good answer to that one. He said, someone says God was preparing hell for people who ask questions like that. And if you spent any time on social media, listening to podcasts, watching cable news or political debate or Senate committee hearings, you've probably seen one particular form of this type of discourse. The disingenuous question posed only as a trap to score rhetorical points in a public setting. And that's how our passage tonight starts, with a stupid question. And this isn't the first time that someone has tried to best Jesus in the public forum. We've seen the Pharisees attempting this all throughout Luke. Just last week, the scribes and the chief priests had gotten together and sent spies to try to trap the Lord by asking a trick question in the taboo arena of submission to governing authorities, but to no avail. For his entire public ministry, Jesus had bested every attempt to undermine his authority. But there's one more group that wants their shot at debating this untrained rabbi from the backwaters of Galilee. The Sadducees make their only appearance here in Luke's gospel to take their turn to stump the chump. But just as we heard last week, and all throughout Jesus' public ministry, they are no match for the Lord of truth in the public debate. The Sadducees' attempt backfires as Jesus uses the very scripture that they claim to believe to expose their folly and turn the question back on them. As he does, Christ teaches that whole crowd of onlookers. And through Luke's faithful retelling of these events, Christ teaches us about the nature of the resurrection, the nature of God, and the nature of the Messiah. We'll see this tonight through the lens of three questions. Two are explicit in the text, and one is implicit. Whose wife? Whose God? and whose son. 
that will serve as our outline, which is available in the back of the bulletin. Kids, the words for you to listen to are also there. And I'll let you know beforehand, the first question, the first point is going to take longer than the other two. So hang in there with me, okay? So whose wife? Luke writes in verse 27, there came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. And we're thankful to the good doctor for this comment because up to this point in Luke, Jesus hasn't interacted with these Sadducees. His public debates have mostly been with the Pharisees, those who added to the law their own tradition and went around making sure everybody else lived up to their standards. But the Sadducees are a different breed. One commentator describes the difference in this way. He writes, the Sadducees were, were few, but very wealthy. The priests and the aristocrats were nearly all Sadducees. They were the governing class, and they were largely collaborationists with Rome, being unwilling to risk losing their wealth, their comfort, and their place. The Pharisees believed in and hoped for the coming of the Messiah. The Sadducees did not. For them, the coming of the Messiah would have been a disturbance of their carefully ordered lives. So you see why they may have a problem with Jesus. And as Luke points out, they doubt almost anything supernatural. Not only do they deny the resurrection, but Luke also writes in Acts 23 that they don't believe in angels or demons. They only believe in the material world. What matters to them is the here and now. And they, they taught that the only way that people actually live on after their death is by having children and passing down their knowledge and their wealth to them. The only heaven that they expect to experience is whatever they can make of it here on earth. In fact, as one early church writer said, they even considered themselves better than the Pharisees. Because they didn't need the motivation of the afterlife to do the right thing. They loved God without the promise of a reward. They were good for the sake of goodness itself. They would fit right in in several sectors of our society today, wouldn't they? So now, this, this untrained rural man has come into town to Jerusalem, and the murmurs in the crowd are, this might be the one. This might be the Messiah. This is bad news for the Sadducees because it threatens their security and their position of authority in society. They've stood by and they've watched as the spies last week failed to take him down. But now they've got the silver bullets that they're sure is going to stop this upstart and his ragtag group of disciples from stirring up any more trouble. They bring him a question. It's a question referring, referring to leveret marriage. It's, it's a law given in Deuteronomy 25. And the law states that if a man dies without a child, it's the responsibility of the man's nearest male relative to take that widow as a wife so that a son can be born to carry on the dead man's name and to keep the inheritance within the family and to care for the woman left behind. If this sounds familiar... This is the law that the whole story of Ruth and Boaz is built on, the, the kinsman redeemer. And the Lord gave this provision for the good of his people and the protection of the vulnerable among them. But it's important that we understand for our passage tonight, there is very little evidence that this leveret marriage was even practiced in Israel at this time, especially not by the Sadducees. 
So this is not a question about a law that was commonly followed, and so it might address a legitimate situation that would arise. The whole question is just a hypothetical theology trap meant to try to make Jesus look foolish. So the spokesman steps forward from among the group, and he begins. you got to picture his tone. Teacher, tell us about this so-called resurrection. Say that there's a woman who was married to seven different men and, and never gave a child to any of them. In the resurrection, which man gets to claim her as his property since none of them actually perpetuated him, th themselves by having children with her? And then you picture the other Sadducees in the background high-fiving and snickering. How on earth will this carpenter from Galilee come back from such an obvious destruction of his silly provincial theology? Surely he'll have to admit defeat and concede. No, there is actually no reason to believe that the bodies of the dead will raise on the last day. And Jesus responds in verse 34. But Luke is a little kinder to the Sadducees, and he leaves out a statement that Matthew and Mark record in their Gospels. And I have to share it with you. Mark records Jesus beginning his reply by saying, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God? Let me tell you why your question is ridiculous, right? But Luke skips that introduction, gets right to the teaching. Verse 34. And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore, because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. He says, you Sadducees, you're wrong when you assume that the resurrection will be exactly like this world. He makes a distinction between this age and that one. And as he does, he, he, makes, he points out a couple of radical changes between the two. First, there's a radical change between normal life between, these age, between the two ages. This age is the time of sin, the time of death, the time of entropy, the time when the progress of the people of God on earth depends in part on children being born. Marriage was instituted before the first sin, but on this side of the fall, its purpose is summed up in uh, chapter 24 of our confession, which says this, marriage was ordained for the mutual help of husband and wife, for the increase of mankind with legitimate issue, and of the church with a holy seed, and for preventing of uncleanness. In this age, people die, and so the covenant people of God and humanity at large is dependent on marriage to perpetuate itself. But Jesus says there's something radically different in that coming age, the age of the resurrection. In that time, people will no longer die. Because they will no longer die, there will be no need for children to be born, and the whole purpose of marrying a kinsman redeemer to carry on the family legacy will cease, and the Sadducees' fake scenario is irrelevant. Second, he says there will be a radical change in the family between the ages. Not only will marriage, as we know it, no longer exist, but through their resurrection, those worthy to attain that age will become God's own children. Human relationships don't go away, but they're brought to a new level. R.C. Sproul describes it this way. 
The trap the Sadducees were seeking to lay for Jesus was to do with one's earthly family. But Jesus points out that when we get to heaven, the family that we will be a member of will be the family of God. We will be children of God, even as we are now, by virtue of our regeneration. So since we are already part of God's family, we get foretastes of this now, don't we? In Christ's death and resurrection and ascension, his kingdom has been inaugurated. And so his people are brought from spiritual death to life. We're given the Holy Spirit as a down payment of our inheritance, and he assures us that God is our Father who loves us. We, we even already begin to see our relationships within the church change. As we regard one another as, as more than neighbors, more than fellow citizens, but we're brothers and sisters in the family of God. And we have communion with the saints who have gone before us, and who are around the world today. But that age will not fully come in all its glory until the return of Christ, which we eagerly await. So before we go any further, I want to give us two cautions that arise from this passage. And the first one is plainly there in the statement that Jesus makes. Not all are worthy to attain to that resurrection age. For most people in the world, and sadly for for many in the church, if they do believe in heaven, the only qualification for getting there seems to be dying. But Jesus says there is a measure of worthiness to enter the resurrection. And although it's subtle in the text, I think he's hinting to the Sadducees that they aren't going to make the cuts. And the resurrection... he's uh, speaking of here is a bit nuanced as our confession states at the last day such as are found alive shall not die but be changed and all the dead shall be raised up with the self-same bodies and none other though with different qualities which shall be united again to their souls forever the bodies of the unjust shall by the power of christ be raised to dishonor the bodies of the just by his spirit unto honor and be made conformable to his own glorious body. So when Jesus says that only some are worthy to attain to that resurrection, he's not teaching some annihilation where the rest of them just simply cease to exist. Believers and unbelievers alike will be risen from the dead. However, those who have not been united to Christ by faith will be raised to be judged and to endure what's called in Revelation 21, the second death. So notice in the passage, Jesus is speaking of what he calls the resurrection from death. The resurrection to eternal life, never to experience death again. And not all will be found worthy of it. In fact, sinless perfection is the standard to enter that life. A standard none of us can meet on our own. So the question is, who will be found worthy? Is that worthiness based on our obedience, our faithfulness to the Lord, maybe our own self-denial? No. As John writes in his gospel, salvation and becoming a child of God, a son of God and a son of the resurrection comes through faith in Jesus. 
He writes, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. You and I can be found worthy of the resurrection only by receiving the worth of Jesus Christ by believing in him. Make no mistake. If you deny that there is life after death, if you think there will be no judgment or that everyone will somehow move into eternal life, you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. If you are relying on anything besides the merits of the Lord Jesus for your salvation, you will not be found worthy. You will not receive the blessed life he speaks of. My plea with you is to come out of that deception. Turn to Jesus who stands ready to receive and forgive all of your sins and be joined to him in faith which will join you to his death and his resurrection. All right, second caution. We should remember that Scripture actually doesn't give us all that much detail about the eternal state or about heaven. And speculation about heaven can be dangerous and is not probably a very good use of time. So my kids love to ask questions like, will there be ice cream in heaven? Will we have pets in heaven? Will I get to swim with a narwhal in heaven? And the truth is, none of those questions are answered in Scripture. So my answer to those types of questions is usually something like, if when you get to heaven, you want those things to be the case, then they'll be in heaven. If you get to heaven and you want ice cream, there will be ice cream. If you get to heaven and want to swim with a narwhal, there will be narwhals aplenty. But none of those things are very important. Otherwise, God would have told us about them in his word. And think of how different this is from the common ideas of paradise. The pagan religions and, and just the common depiction of heaven have things like eternal marriage on a planet you get to populate and rule over, or 70 virgins, or perfect weather for fishing or golfing or whatever your favorite hobby is. They are only what we might think of as a better version of life as we know it on this earth. But our own catechism teaches us from Scripture that the highest good for us is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. So heaven is not about whatever we might think would be fun. It is about dwelling with God as His people. So whatever you conceive of as heaven... I can promise you one thing. It is so much better than that. And based on what God has told us in Scripture, here's what is important for us to know. This resurrection life will be free from sin, sickness, sadness, and death. It will be full of joy and worship. And most importantly, the risen and glorified Lord Jesus will be there. So unlike the Sadducees, we should fight the urge to bring our understanding of this natural world under sin into our conception of this resurrection age. And we should believe and be content with what the scripture does teach us about that age. And while for many of us, 
It may be difficult to conceive of that, not including the most intimate and joyful interpersonal relationship between two people. This passage teaches us that our marriages will not continue in eternity, not because marriage is bad or because human relationships won't continue, but because there will be a better marriage there. One that all of God's people partake in. In Revelation 19, John writes this. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. Why? For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's the marriage we're looking forward to. So based on Jesus' answer to the Sadducees, there are at least three applications that I want us to take away. First, because our marriage here is not ultimate, both you and your spouse are free from being crushed with the weight of being perfect. Marriage is not mainly about your self-fulfillment or making you complete, but it's a blessing that helps us grow in sanctification and prepare us for the life to come. Because Jesus is the perfect husband to his bride, the church, he covers for the imperfections of sinful husbands and wives and allows them to live together in forgiveness and repentance. But even more, because marriage is not ultimate, you do not have to be married to be a faithful Christian. The single adults among us are valuable, complete, fruitful members of the church of God because of the work of our Savior. Second takeaway, because nothing in this world is ultimate, we must not make the same mistake as the Sadducees in trying to bring heaven on earth now, whether it's in society or in our own personal lives. As Jesus has repeatedly taught all throughout our study of Luke, his disciples must be willing to suffer and sacrifice all material things to attain eternal blessing. This world is passing away. And so we must find our security and our hope in Christ and in his kingdom and in Christ and in his kingdom alone. Not in a perfectly restored society or our families or our possessions or power or prestige here. And third takeaway. We must not make the mistake of the ascetics who misuse this passage. Christ is not teaching that we are more spiritual by simply denying the gifts that God gives us in this world. We live in the already and the not yet between the two ages. So most of us should expect to marry and raise families. It's common. Singleness is a gift that, that some Christians have and will experience in their life on this earth. And those who don't 
shouldn't unnecessarily delay or avoid marriage thinking that somehow that's the more spiritual thing to do. All right, so that answers whose wife. But just like in the debate with the spies about Caesar's tax, Jesus isn't content to simply address the surface-level question and leave it there. He pushes to the deeper issue that's driving that question. For the Pharisees, what was it? It was that they were not living lives submitted to God, whose image they bore. And for the Sadducees, the problem is that they are not rightly interpreting and believing the very scriptures that they claim are authoritative. Look how Jesus continues his answer in verse 37. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. The people of God should have already understood the ultimate reality of the resurrection because the Lord has bound himself to promises he has made. And while it may seem a little obscure that Jesus would go to this passage, it is no coincidence that he chooses to go here. The Sadducees, you see, only accepted the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, as authoritative scripture. So he quotes from one of those writings of Moses. But he also chooses that specific moment where the Lord reveals himself to Moses with his covenant name. Here's the passage that he's referring to. Moses writes this in Exodus 3. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel. The Lord... The God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. The Lord promised to be the God to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And as Jesus uses this reference, he's showing this promise is rooted in three things. First, God roots his promise in his own name. He is, I am who I am. The one who never changes. The one who alone determines how he will interact with his creation. He takes the initiative in electing a people of his own. And his nature will not change, so his promise will remain. But second, he goes further. He roots this promise in a covenant. The resurrection to eternal life is a promised blessing to those whom God has chosen as his own. He promised to be a God to Abraham and his children, and he ratified that promise with a covenant. And then he reiterated that promise to both Isaac and to Jacob in their lifetimes. In doing this, God obligated himself to bring these blessings that he promised by an oath. This covenant made him the God of the patriarchs. And Jesus here roots the promise of the resurrection in this covenant relationship of God to his people. And third, what does Jesus do? He roots this promise in Scripture. 
Jesus isn't making up a doctrine out of thin air. He shows that this reality has already, always been there. And the Sadducees have just missed what was right in front of them. His argument's quite simple. God promised to be the God to each of the patriarchs, and they're dead. If their deaths were the end of their existences, then God would be unfaithful to his promise. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. He's the source of life itself. And what's more, the promise, this promise, is repeated throughout Scripture and restated as God's promise to dwell with his people as he is their God. So since these patriarchs are currently dead, this requires resurrection. Because Scripture knows nothing of a spirit permanently living on apart from the body. Man is an embodied being. And so death, which separates soul from body, cannot be final. God must raise his people from the dead in order to dwell with them as their God. And the Sadducees should have known this. Because what Jesus is saying here is really no different than the point of the author of Hebrews in chapter 11. He writes this beginning in in verse 13, referring to the patriarchs. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For the people who speak thus made it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. And then the author closes the chapter saying this, talking about all of the Old Testament saints. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Quite simply, If there is no resurrection, then God lied to his people. Of course, that is impossible. So those who reject the resurrection must be wrong. And again, here at the end, Luke's a little softer than Mark. Mark ends this section quoting Jesus, having made his point, matter-of-factly looking at the Sadducees and saying, you are quite wrong. And the argument's so good that the scribes, the ones who had been opposed to Jesus, they were the religious opponents of the Sadducees, and they can't help themselves. They have to affirm Jesus' argument in verse 39, because they believe in the resurrection. And although Jesus makes an argument that they haven't made themselves, they can't help but say that he has indeed spoken well. They give their amen. So this leads us to one comfort and one warning that we should take to heart. So bad news first. What's the warning? The warning is, it is not enough to say that we believe Scripture is God's Word. We must rightly understand it and live as it calls us to. You see, the Sadducees affirmed the inerrancy of Scripture, at least what they regarded as Scripture. They embraced the traditional and biblical ethic at least by profession. They were the conservatives, not the liberals. But 
as Michael Wilcock puts it in his commentary on this passage. Their religion is full of half-baked notions of what the Scripture says. But it is no use your quoting the Bible at me, retorts Jesus, when you have obviously not studied what it really does say. And so, brothers and sisters, we cannot merely say that we believe the Bible. All of our doctrine and practice must be rooted in it. We must study it and compare everything that we say we believe to what it teaches and where we are at odds with God's word in our beliefs and our lives, we must change. If you ever hear anything preached from this pulpit or any other that is not expressly or by good and necessary consequence from Scripture, don't you dare believe it. We do not have to be scared of doing this work because God's word is sufficient and it points the way to eternal life. So there's your warning. Now the comfort. This reality, the resurrection life, it's not theoretical. And it's not only for the physical descendants of Abraham. Because Paul tells us in Galatians 3, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So Christian... The promise of the resurrection is for you and your children. Kids, adults, men and women, Jew and Gentile, if you have been baptized, God promises to be your God. And if you respond in faith, just like Father Abraham, you will receive the same blessing of eternal life as he will. This comforts us. Because the death rate is still 100. We will all face death ourselves. And this comforts us because we have loved ones, friends, and family who have died in Christ. And they will rise on the last day and enter into eternal life. For those of you who have, had, who have children who have died, you have every reason to trust that the Lord of heaven will keep his promise to be their God and grant them everlasting life. So trust and rest in his promise because his promises never fail. All right, so we've seen the question, whose wife? which was a stupid question. And we've seen the question, who's God? Demonstrating that the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob is the God of the living. So now one question remains. And at this point, the tables turn. And I had a really good illustration from Marvel movies I had to cut for time, but I was thinking about that. Daryl Bach describes this turn like this. Every possible group has taken a shot at Jesus and failed. Pharisees, nationalists, scribes, Sadducees, leaders of the people. On the topics of ministry, politics, and theology, Jesus has prevailed. Their best shots leave him unfazed, and now they no longer dare to ask him any question. So Jesus takes a pause and then says, my turn. Look at verse 41. But he said to them, how can they say that the Christ is David's son? 
For David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And this quotation is from Psalm 110, which is the Old Testament passage that's referenced the most in the New Testament. And it's usually used to make the same point that Jesus does here. That the Messiah is more than a mere man. In this psalm, David is speaking of a prophetic vision that he's had, where he sees God speaking to someone who David calls my Lord. And Jesus says that this Lord is the Messiah, a descendant of David. But this presents a problem. Because in Jewish thought, the ancestor would always be seen as superior to his descendants. And we're not talking about just any man. David is the king of Israel chosen by God. He's the man after God's own heart. He's the king that all the kings of Israel and Judah would be compared against. There is, there's no man on earth, especially one of his own great-great-grandchildren, that the great warrior king David would have called Lord. And Jesus doesn't even press the issue here of how a mere human could share the throne of the Lord of the universe. And he doesn't answer the question for his opponents. So Lord willing, we'll look at all of Psalm 110 sometime later this year. But we're going to do what Jesus did. We'll let that question linger. No one dares offer an answer because the conclusion is clear. The son of David must be something more than a regular man. Indeed, this great son of David is the son of God made man for our salvation, as we will confess in just a couple of minutes. This is the Lord Jesus Christ, promised by the prophets, acclaimed as the son of David by the crowds as he entered Jerusalem, who is standing there in the middle of the temple, speaking to them. It should be obvious now to all of those that have been paying attention to Jesus since the triumphal entry. He's claiming to be that Messiah, and to be so much more than just some political or military leader. He is the king that was coming to bring salvation in the name of the Lord. He is the one zealous for his father's house. He has the right to teach based on the authority of his father's commission. He is the son of the man who owns the vineyard. He is the stone that was rejected that has become the cornerstone. He is the God that we all bear the image of and to whom we all must render obedience. He is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God of the living, not the dead. So if you go, how does he know that Exodus 3 is a promise of the resurrection? Because he's the one that said it. So you can take him at his word when he speaks about the resurrection. His word is sure. And it would be his own resurrection that served as confirmation of everything that he has said. Paul writes in Romans 1 that our Lord Jesus Christ was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. So as we come to the end of this passage, this final confrontation in the temple, we're confronted with the same reality we seem to come back to over and over in Luke. 
There is no neutrality when it comes to Jesus. You are either with him or against him. He has answered every question posed to him, and now he leaves his opponents silent with a question of his own. Whose wife? Wrong question. The real question is whether you will be found worthy to attain to the resurrection. Whose God is the God of Israel? He is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the living, the God of the resurrection. Whose son is the Messiah, David's or God's? The answer is yes. And he stands before you today, offering himself to be your husband, your God, your deliverer. By his own resurrection from the dead, he has been affirmed as God's own son. So the final question tonight is whose side? Whose side will you take? Will you stand with the son of David and enjoy life with him forever? Or will you deny him like the leaders of Israel? By his spirit, may we all trust and rest in him because if we do, we will be found worthy of that age.